Welcome to Virginia Focus. I'm Rebecca Hughes of the Virginia News Network. High food costs creating more food insecurity coupled with gas prices that are dollars away from the price four years ago. Families making over $100,000 a year living paycheck to paycheck. These are the headlines that affect Americans in 2023. As well, about 362,000 workers have gone on strike so far in 2023 compared with just 36,000 over the same period two years ago. The average American feels financially unstable. Can anything be done to fix this mess? On this episode, we're discussing financial current events with Alex Calderon, the president of Calderon Advisory Group. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could make some time for us today. Thank you, Rebecca. So the things we're talking about today, I think, are on a lot of people's minds. We see constantly in the news of different unions are starting to strike. It's no secret if you have any kind of social media that the wages have not kept up with inflation since about the 70s. And I think it's really starting to all come to a head. So do you think we're going to continue to see strikes by all these different groups throughout the next year or so? Or what do you think might be the future we're looking at? Well, I think the trend uh, is most certainly going to continue in that direction. Look, if you look at these workers, they're striking not just for uh, better pay or conditions, but at the, the root of all of this is a fight over economic fairness. And we have workers right now that are pushing back against a system that has essentially left them financially insecure while others prosper. And so I think there is a broader issue at stake here, and that is one of economic fairness. And I think that until some balance is restored, you will continue to see this movement pervade across the country and beyond. Okay, I think that's a really good assessment of things because I know in addition to the strikes and things, we keep hearing about how companies are having, even when they have a downturn, they're still having record profits compared to previous years. And what do you think led us to this situation? Well, I think it's all a function, certainly, of wealth inequality. Uh, that, is, that is definitely what is fueling the rise in these strikes. Government policies, uh, including tax cuts for the wealthy, you know, more than a decade of low interest rates, pandemic stimulus that made its way into the pockets of a lot of people that probably didn't need it as badly as the government thought they were going to need it. And then on top of that, you know, uh, further inflationary policies, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Act, the Chips and Science Act, you know, we have a situation where we have government policies that over a very long period of time now have inadvertently created inflation. And inflation really impacts those at the, the bottom of the economic food chain. It is a tax on the folks that really can afford it the least. And so, you know, we have the situation where the rich have gotten richer, workers have faced higher living costs without increased wages, and, and assets have inflated over a very long period of time. Uh, you know, certainly it's headlines in, in, across all the papers. Housing is very unaffordable right now. So I think the, the, you know, the root of this issue is wealth inequality. And I think that to a large degree, uh, you know, the government has, has inadvertently uh, created this with uh, policy decisions. Okay, I agree with that. Now, I have seen some people say things like there are certain organizations, multinational organizations who want a one world order, so to speak, a one world government. History has shown that doesn't ever seem to work when you give one group or one person that much power. It usually ends up with a greedy situation, which is what you're saying has happened with the companies as well. Have you heard anything like that yourself? You know, I'm, I'm just a, a financial consultant uh, from Detroit, and uh, I'm, I'm really not a political person. Um, you know, I, I consider myself mainly nonpartisan. I know that there are all these different conspiracy theories out there. I, I'm a business guy, and I just tend to kind of look at the data. And, you know, what I believe that we have is just misaligned policies that have come out of both sides of the government. 
you know, I don't know if there's some puppet master that has done this intentionally or not. My suspicion is a lot of this may not be intentional outside of just, you know, politicians on both sides of the aisle wanting to make everyone happy. And, and I think that, you know, there is no free lunch in life, in business, in economics. And when we give too much too quickly, we create unintended consequences. And, you know, I think the current administration is just as equally guilty as uh, the prior administration. You know, a lot of this started after the, the uh, last great economic downfall of people commonly referred to as the uh, Great Recession, where interest rates were set very, very low. Uh, there was an economic reason, obviously, at the time to do that. But we didn't wean off the cheap money fast enough. And, and I'm sure to some degree there were, you know, politics involved in that. But at the end of the day, you know, cheap money tends to benefit wealthier people because wealthier people have the means to use debt. And when debt is cheap, they can lever their returns. And so, so you know, what we've seen starting with kind of the low interest rates that were at one time necessary uh, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, but perhaps uh, weren't as necessary over the ensuing decade, uh, I think that's where the, the fire was, you know, kind of slowly but surely ignited initially. And then we had the, uh, you know, Trump tax cuts, uh, which really did nothing but fuel even even greater levels of inflation. Uh, and then we had COVID. And I, I think at the time, uh, people were, were seeing people dying from the disease. And I think that, you know, certainly some level of relief was necessary. But our politicians in Washington panicked and uh, they used a shotgun approach, uh, spread a lot of money out, printed a lot of money. A lot of it ended up in the pockets of fraudsters. Some ended up in the pockets of very wealthy people that really didn't need it. And so all of these things were inflationary in nature. Uh, and add to that, you know, more government spending, the, the forced move to a carbon-free environment that, you know, by all means, uh, in my opinion, is being done in haste, uh, is inflationary nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I take all of this uh, in combination together, really the crux of the issue is that we have, since the Great Recession and continuing through today, we've never been willing as a society to address some of our issues, utilizing more kind of conservative measures. And the solution has been to fix the problems by just throwing more money at them. Um, and that just doesn't necessarily work into perpetuity. And I think now we're caught in between in a rock and a hard place where, you know, some of the traditional tools that have been used to cool down inflation um, and perhaps stem you know, this tax on the poorest members of our society uh, don't work as well as they used to. You know, the Fed has raised interest rates a number of times. You know, we're at we're at highs, you know, at least going back a decade or so. And when we sit here today, the increased interest rates in and of themselves are inflationary because people who already have large sums of money can now park it risk free and get a five or six percent return. And when the federal government has to pay the interest on all this money that it's printed, that money circulates around the economy. And when it circulates around the economy, it increases the money supply and we have more inflation. So you know, I think the root cause of all of this is wealth inequality that's driven by being perpetuated currently by inflation that started as a result of, you know, kind of economic policies that were just a little bit too loose. I agree. I know I saw recently a report from the National Institute on Retirement Security, and they zeroed in on Gen X. Gen X is known as the forgotten generation. Uh, the joke is that their parents ignored them. But one of the things that this report said is that regardless of race, gender, marital status, or income, 
Gen Xers are not meeting their retirement savings. And the, the report chalks it up to, of course, wages not keeping up with inflation, the shift from employer-run pensions to like 401k savings plans that are managed more by the employee, and the need to dip into those retirement plans multiple times throughout you know the adult life because of different national economic crises. I mean, do you think that's, obviously that's a big deal for Gen Xers, but do you think the following generations are going to see just as much, if not more, turmoil like that? So I'll answer that question. Um, I, I think I have two key points that I want to make on that one. And the first is, yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you that, that Gen X has been caught in the crosshairs of these economic upheavals and, and policy missteps. And, and they have a path to financial security that really is fraught with challenges, where I think a lot of Gen Xers have, have really been um, disproportionately impacted. And some of this just has a lot to do with their you know, unique experience having gone through the Great Recession is on the housing side of things. And I think one of the key challenges that Gen X has faced is because they were kind of coming of age uh, economically and financially during the Great Recession, they're scarred by that memory. And if you go back at a time machine and you look at where their mindsets were, 2006, 2007, these were years, you know, even the early parts of 2008, where no one ever thought the good times would come to an end. And there are a lot of Gen Xers out there who were very financially comfortable. They had great jobs. And, and, and they, you know, were blindsided by this, you know, kind of economic doomsday that manifested in 2008, 9, 10. And a lot of them were caught underwater on their houses. Some of them lost a, a ton of their net worth uh, in the stock market. And they were shell-shocked by that experience, so much so that they really were overly risk-averse uh, in the ensuing years. And being risk-averse during that, you know, call it 2011-ish to 2021 or 2022 time period during which interest rates were at all-time lows forever. Uh, the, the Fed stepped in and saved the markets as a result of the COVID crisis. The government began indiscriminately printing money, not only, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, mailing checks to people and giving corporations large bailouts, but but even after that, with respect to, you know, kind of the this building of America 2.0 with the infrastructure bill and the shift to electric vehicles, that was a time period where people who were risk averse were penalized disproportionately. And so I think to some degree, what Gen X is dealing with is their own risk aversion that they were significantly penalized for, which was a reasonable and, and logical approach toward, you know, kind of this last decade and a half. It really, really hurt them because they were left behind. They didn't take risk. A lot of them didn't invest uh, in risky ways that would have, that paid off for everyone else. And so I think they were left behind there. I think that on the go forward, th there is a potential fix for all of this that I don't think has, has made its way pervasively across the media. And I, I think it's a conversation that, that is just now, you know, kind of begun, but, but isn't necessarily a mature one yet. And that is, we stand here today on the precipice of technological changes that are going to enhance productivity uh, in ways that, that no one can imagine. I'm a financial consultant. And, you know, I'm very well apprised of the technological tools that, that I have to use on a daily basis. And now those are going to change uh, in the next six or eight months here as a result of artificial intelligence. And I can tell you that I will be able to do my job probably 50% more efficiently two years from now than I can today. And I think the discussion that we need to have right now revolves around those productivity gains that we will see and, and how the pie of uh, incremental profit uh, and economic upside driven by those productivity gains is going to be split. Um, and, and if that pie ends up being monopolized by the people that are already at the very top of society, uh, socioeconomically, 
who already have lots of money and they're going to be the major beneficiaries of these technological enhancements, then I think that's, you know, that's a recipe for disaster because wealth inequality is only going to get worse. But if we have a scenario where um, that pie is split proportionately uh, and, and we are uh, careful and cognizant about who keeps those gains, then I think, you know, productivity can kind of be this factor that really changes the equation and, and allows, you know, the people at the, at the bottom or in the middle of the uh, economic food chain that have been passed over to be able to catch up again. And when we look at all the strikes, you know, I'm very familiar with what's going on with the UAW strike because I'm in Detroit. You know, even even in the context of that scenario, 40 percent wage increase request that makes the headlines. But but what no one seems to really be talking about is, you know, is 40 percent even enough, depending on on the way that the productivity gains end up being sliced uh, on the go forward. And so I think that's that's a key part of the discussion. I think that our policymakers in Washington, our policymakers, you know, in the state governments, they, they have to really be cognizant as well of this wealth inequality issue and the inflation issue and who it's impacting. And I think that, you know, more conservative policies where we're not just printing money would go a long way toward toward uh, not increasing that wealth uh, disparity any further. But I also think things like regulating the uh, artificial intelligence and technological advancements and trying to determine, you know, how that pie will be sliced, uh, all, all of those things collectively, you know, will will play a major role in, in the future of where we go from here. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Now, I wanted to also, this was one of the important questions that's important to a lot of people and myself included. I'm not part of a union. There are a lot of states out there that are at will states, you know, will to work or whatever. Some still have unions, some don't. We are watching all these people, like you said, and, and the unions are getting, you know, the UPS and the United Auto Workers are hopefully going to get their 40% cut over the next four years. I agree with you. Is 40% even enough um, based on the needs to feed a family. What about those of us who don't have union representation? I mean, I've watched union members make way more than I do, you know, having that union to their benefit most of the time. Of course, there are times it isn't great, but for the most part, they make more wages, generally speaking. Anyway, what about the rest of us who are not in a union? How do we go about getting businesses to, to relinquish our fair share of salaries as well? Well, I think I think that strikes tend to lead to improvements in wages and working conditions that can benefit everyone. They also raise public awareness and can influence policy changes to address, you know, workers' issues in general. If I want to speak to the doomsday scenario, you know, it's one of continued inflation. And, you know, the consequence of all of these wage increases relative to the, the, the union strikes is that everything ultimately is going to become far more expensive for everyone else to acquire. And I think that when I say that strikes lead to improvements in wages and working conditions that can benefit everyone and raise public awareness that can influence policy change, you know, I, I think generally the people at the lowest level of the economy tend to benefit the most from the strikes. I think a phenomenon that we, we will see going forward, absent some fairly significant policy changes and absent, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, kind of a change in course on, on where I think the economy might be going is that the middle class, I think, is going to be the cohort that will be squeezed the most as a result of all of this. And we're seeing it right now. You know, I can give you a personal example. You know, I have family members, I have friends who are lawyers, they're doctors, they're accountants. And these are professionals who have gone through a lot of schooling, paid a lot of money to go through that schooling, worked very hard to specialize and, you know, fulfill roles that are, that are by all means not easy for people to just fulfill. 
And those individuals, frankly, I would argue, have been hit perhaps proportionately the hardest by inflation and, and some of what's going on, because they're people who have traditionally been able to live a little bit better than everyone else. And I think now we're seeing scenarios where, you know, doctors and lawyers and accountants, they can't afford houses. They're having a hard time, you know, growing their families and, and settling in and pursuing that American dream. And so I think absent some sort of drastic change in direction, you're likely to see the middle class squeeze the most uh, as a result of, of what's going on here. And I think that, you know, the way that that policymakers will view this is everyone should be able to eat. Everyone should be able, you know, kind of as a fundamental right perhaps have a roof over their head and have health care and, and kind of these basic necessities. But anything else above that, you know, is a luxury. And so I think I think that the people at the at the bottom of that food chain will probably fare reasonably well. Um, I don't know that they'll be in any better of a situation. I think that, you know, a lot of this will just kind of catch them up to where inflation has put them. But I think those people in the middle stand stand kind of I think their quality of life and standard of living is is set to deteriorate the most. Okay. Now, if you were the person chosen to advise those in power of what next steps need to be taken, what kind of policy changes and, and whatnot would you recommend? Well, I think I think revisiting tax structures, you know, that's one that's been on everyone's radar screen. And, and I, I think right now you have a scenario where the middle class, the upper middle class, and, and those at the bottom are, are disproportionately burdened by tax consequences. And I think that you know, there, there are folks at the very, very top that, you know, proportionately are paying, you know, as a percentage of their overall income, far lower taxes. And so I think that, I think tax reform, it's, it's a political hot button. It's something that people don't want to touch. But I think it's, I think it's one way to, you know, kind of redistribute wealth and, and help the people that have not benefited from, you know, kind of the unintended consequence of spending policies, low interest rates, et cetera, while, you know, the people at the very top probably can afford to pay a little bit more of a fair share. And to the extent that, you know, them paying incremental fair share would be passed on to people in the middle and at the bottom, I think it would it would be one way of helping the situation. I also think that as we move forward here and we consider the transformative nature of artificial intelligence and technological enhancements and what those will do to productivity, I, th I think there is a broader discussion across society to determine who keeps those gains and how that pie is sliced equitably because if those gains are monopolized by the people who already have all the money, it's not going to do anything other than just drive further wealth inequality. I think policies to, you know, designed to tackle the housing affordability crisis, you know, I don't purport to know exactly how those should work, but I think it's a big issue that we have in this country. People just can't afford homes anymore. People can't afford apartments anymore. And I, I think some sort of policy to tackle that is important. You know, I also think that, and this isn't necessary, uh, necessarily a, a, an issue where I think the government is best suited to address this, but I think individual compensation and individual incentivization is important. And I think we see that at the top, right? We see the CEO of a Fortune 500 company uh, can make 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or $50 million a year. But in the middle and at the bottom, you know, the Michael Jordan equivalent on the team, he can work as hard as he wants to, and he can drive all kinds of productivity enhancements and efficiency enhancements. And he or she, you know, doesn't really have an opportunity to, to you know, be compensated more for extra work, right? And I think that as a society, if we want to see, if we want productivity to be enhanced and we want people to be motivated, we have to give them a reason to be. And, you know, if you're somebody who's, you know, in a job right now that's, you know, kind of toward, toward the bottom end of that scale, with respect to uh, wages or salary, 
um, and you know that that job is just never going to give you the opportunity to make more money, uh, it's very hard to be motivated. And, and I think that, you know, when we consider, you know, whether it's someone who works at a restaurant, whether it's someone who, um, you know, works on the line at a manufacturing facility, individual contributions make a difference. And so I think, you know, as, 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 we, as we have the, this debate over labor and who should be paid what, I think trying to bucket, you know, people with disparate attitudes and disparate skill sets into one broad category that says, uh, you know, if you're part of this group, you can only make $21 an hour, $22 an hour. I think it hurts us. And I think it's uh, something that we need to delve uh, deeper into. And I think, you know, along those lines, when we consider the technological improvements that are going to take place into the next two, three, four, five years, maybe a decade, you know, figuring out how to, how to retrain people, figuring out how to retrain people so that they can lever this technology and make our society more productive and actually increase the economic pie and their piece of the economic pie uh, is super important because there is there is a way out of this if we just become that much more productive as a nation, as a country, as a society. Okay, I like that. My question to you then becomes, obviously, our tax system, when we talk about that, it was designed not only to support, you know, different federal programs, et cetera, et cetera, but it was designed to reward people who create jobs. Most of those people at the top, if you actually look at the income they are reporting because of the way our system is created, they get to invest and they get to donate and they get to do all these things with their money that give them tax breaks or that make that money ineligible for taxes. You know, they bought a bunch of real estate and now they're rental. Those are rentals instead of homes you can purchase. But in those ways, that's how they have protected their own wealth because that's the way our economy is set up right now and our policy. Policy. And to be honest, those are opportunities for everyone. If you can just come up with the capital to get started, you know, anyone can take those opportunities and make a business. Business licenses and stuff are not that expensive. Building your own business and then investing in real estate. Again, it's something that if you can just get the, the ability to get started, then it starts paying off in the end. If we start penalizing the people too much at the top, that also takes away those availabilities to the rest of the population to follow suit and do the same things and get those same benefits from passive income versus active income. Would you say that that is the solution anyway, or do you think it's more along the lines of lowering taxes for the for the bottom and maybe even raising our poverty level to something that actually is more realistic? Well, I think you have to take care of the people at the bottom and in the middle. And I, and I think that we've been extraordinarily accommodative to the people at the top. And, and I, I wouldn't be the right person to, to say how many of those people at the top have been good actors and bad actors. You know, I have several that I work for, and I, I can tell you that, you know, those individuals have been exceedingly generous. Um, but when we look at the tax cuts, for example, what did we see? We saw a lot of stock buybacks. And stock buybacks increase the you know value of people that already own stocks. And so, if you don't already own stocks, the corporation uses its tax cuts in order to buy more shares back. You know that that has a very different economic consequence than a corporation that passes along the tax savings to its employee base. And I think that over the past two or three years, the, the government has, has has really been extraordinarily generous to businesses and business owners. Paytech protection program loans uh, during COVID, these employee retention credits that, you know, have been abused very significantly. It's kind of been, you know, um, headlines in the papers. You know, the recipients of all of these 
you know, the intended purpose was to keep jobs and to keep people employed and to, you know, for lack of better terms, kind of share the wealth. But I think the issue that we have is, is there doesn't seem to be a good measure of accountability in place to determine how the parties that obtain those benefits actually redistribute them. You know, I look at, I, there are two arguments that can be made for tax cuts. Yes, there's a scenario where if someone is not taxed as much, you know, a wealthy business owner is not taxed as much, he has a lot more money that he can reinvest in his or her company and, and, and grow that business. There's also a scenario where, you know, if, if let's just say, you know, any dollar in excess of 10 million or $20 million a year were taxed at a you know, 90% tax rate or an 80% tax rate, the consequence of paying people more um, would not be felt by that taxpayer because it would cost him or her 10 cents on the dollar instead of 40 or 50 or whatever it might be. You know, in some instances, a lot less than that, uh, you know, depending on, you know, kind of a high net worth individual's unique tax situation. So, you know, I, I think that and, 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 and I, I wouldn't consider myself someone who does not believe that there is a role for um, entrepreneurs who have started businesses that have created tremendous amounts of value for society. To be clear, people like that should be rewarded. Uh, and I'm not saying that we create a system where those individuals are no longer incentivized to continue innovating uh, and changing the world for us. But, but I also think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of folks that don't necessarily you know, fit the bill of a game changer or someone who's creating lots of employment um, and passing along wealth and, and making society better that have just kind of benefited from, from this you know, 10, 15 year long uh, streak here. And, and so you know, the, the consequence of allowing the wealth gap to continue to grow will ultimately be, in my opinion, uh, you know, a breakdown of our society. You know, people rob and people steal, uh, in my opinion, more often out of necessity uh, than out of any other reason. And, and, you know, I'm sure there are people that will, that will, you know, argue against that. And I don't have all the stats to support what I'm saying, but we, you know, we can't have a situation where the vast majority of people in the middle and at the bottom can't afford to live. A society cannot function that way. And, you know, whether it's tax policy, whether it's, you know, figuring out how to how to share the wealth that will be associated with technological and productivity advancements as a result of artificial intelligence, uh, you know, kind of austerity measures and disinflationary policy that's rolled out by the government. We have to do something about the the gap that exists today. And that is the same gap that is driving the uh, union strikes uh, and 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 those, you know, absent policy changes are probably not going to do much more than just increase inflation. And again, inflation is a tax on, you know, the very poorest members of society. The, the more wealthy someone is, the less impactful and meaningful inflation is. Um, and so we, we have to tackle those issues. And, you know, I think it's policy driven uh, to a very large degree. Uh, and, and I'm not, again, I, I'm not one to say that, you know, the policies of the last 10 or 15 years were intentional, that there's some devious goal out there. I'm a finance guy from Detroit. You know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, mm -hmm. but I think they've had unintended consequences. And, and those consequences, you know, if, if we don't kind of change the way that we do things, uh, you know, we'll only snowball and, and, and we just we have to fix this issue. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, obviously, we've come to the end of our time. Is there anything else that you think the audience needs to know that we haven't touched upon? You know, I think that and, and, and we hear about this all the time, but I, I really think that in an environment like this, it really behooves folks 
to take the time to become financially literate and to understand not just kind of the ins and outs of budgeting and their own personal cash flow, but to understand economics uh, at the macro level, um, to understand you know, the, the numbers more so now than, than they ever would have before. Because we talked about this, you know, the generation of people that have been kind of lost in the dust. And, you know, what I've realized is a lot of the Gen Xers that have been lost in the dust were lost in the dust because they didn't understand the political climate well enough, the regulatory climate, um, to understand that despite kind of lessons learned from the Great Recession, taking more risk would have been massively advantageous for them. And I think that pendulum could swing. You know, I think that where, where we're at now is there might be a lot of people, well, houses are just going to keep going up and up and up and up and up, right? Right. And, and if you're not watching policy and if you're not paying attention to economics, you know, you risk a repeat of what happened last time. I think there are a lot of folks who are just at the end of this road, um, they're burned out. They finally capitulated and stopped waiting for a good deal, uh, on, on perhaps on a house purchase. And, and now they're saying to themselves, well, what do we, you know, what do we do? Maybe it's just time if you can't beat them, join them. And right now may be the wrong time to do that. And so I think, I think that, you know, understanding the macros and getting into the weeds, even if you're not someone who's, you know, had a uh, college economics course uh, or someone who doesn't have a master's degree or PhD in finance or accounting or uh, economics, really getting granular with the data and understanding where things are going will serve everyone very well as they plan because we're in an environment where things are changing rapidly uh, and will continue to change rapidly. And so having one's fingers on the pulse uh, will, will, will enable them to make really good decisions. And uh, I think that that's critically important. I agree with you. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate all of your time and all of your insight. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Thanks for tuning into the show on your favorite local radio station. You can now listen to this show or past shows through the iHeart app or on iHeart.com. Just search for Virginia Focus under podcasts. I'm Rebecca Hughes with the Virginia News Network, and I'll be here next week on Virginia Focus. 